Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers. The round pegs in the square holes. The ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them. Because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. How do you know when crazy is coming? Sometimes you can feel it, right? You just know, you can feel it in your bones, that within the next week or two or sometime very soon, crazy's coming to town and it's going to throw everything you've been doing for a tailspin. One great example of this, of course, is something that happens with much more frequency these days, and that's the departmental reorganization. Marketers are familiar with this. It happens a lot to us, especially when a new CMO comes in. But beyond marketing, the reorg is something that, while common, actually rarely ends up achieving its intended goal. According to consulting group McKinsey, 60% of companies in the S&P 500 have launched large-scale reorganization initiatives within the last five years. But they find that only 26% of those companies actually succeeded in preventing costs from creeping back up because of those reorgs. So often we hear about the reorg before it ever even happens. Rumors fly, people leave, new people arrive, political enemies are elevated while allies are rumored to go elsewhere. What will we do? We know crazy's coming, we know it's coming soon, but what do we do in the meantime? Sometimes we freeze. We simply say, I'm not moving forward on that cool new initiative that I'm coming up with. I'm going to keep my head down and just wait for crazy. Once crazy gets here, I'll know how to deal. But for now, I'm not doing anything. The thing is, sometimes crazy doesn't come for quite a while, so you can be left doing nothing for a long time. Or sometimes we act out. We do that weird thing now before crazy gets here. After all, what do we have to lose? We should just try and build our empires, make a lot of noise. If crazy sees someone just as crazy, well, maybe they'll leave us alone or be afraid of tipping us off balance. Or sometimes we just move forward, playing our game counting on crazy to see the sanity in what we're doing, the strategic need, the quality of the work, stick to our plans, and just move forward. Hug the crazy. We know crazy will get here, but you know what? Crazy's going to come again, and again, and again. And if crazy moves us off our game, then in the end, it's we who will go crazy. Now, in any one situation, there may be reasons for any or one of all of these three strategies to be effective. But really... It's that last one that truly is the one I've found to be the most helpful, hugging the chaos. Our life as storytellers are contradictions. Every great story always starts at a place where we don't know how it's going to turn out. We hug the chaos. Don't freeze or ignore the chaos. Don't act out and become the chaos. Hug it. Use the embrace of chaos to summon your genius and move or you or someone you can influence. And that's the theme of our show today. Hugging the chaos, 
You know crazy's coming, but you're not going to ignore it and you're not going to become it. You're going to find the time to not only hug the chaos, but to use it. Use the benefit of not knowing what the answer is to summon your inspiration, your wisdom. That's how you're going to be seen as different, and that's what makes you remarkable. And now it's time for me to hug this little hour of chaos and move ahead. I got no idea how this thing is going to turn out. As Indiana Jones says, I'm making it up as I go along. You ready to come along with us? Well then, let's roll. For your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with this old marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 173 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Monday, March 6th, 2017. And with me, as always, is my co-host, my colleague, my friend, and the guy who knows how to handle all the crazy of content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? And it, it certainly is crazy, especially it's with the crazy. two of us. It's cray-cray. <laughs> it, was, it was very laid back at one time uh, and, and straightforward, but now it's crazy. And it gets yes. crazier. Every well, it year. just it, it just seems like there's a lot of crazy right now that we're trying to prepare for, and it's one of those things where it's like you know it's like every day, it seems like you just know that the crazy's coming, right? You just know it. You just know the crazy. Are is we on talking its about way. the content marketing industry? I don't. Industry? I, I, we just no, we're about talking about life. life is what we're talking general. about. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. I, I think in life and in our industry. That's right. Uh, you know, the, the thing, this is just a little sidebar. I had a good uh, good time at the High Five Conference in, uh, in Raleigh last week. They're really, oh, really yeah. good people. Super fun. It's sort of the, you know, they say it's the high five because on the one side you have marketers and on the other side you have creatives. So the okay. high five conference is, you know, where you're doing the high five. So when I had to come out on stage, I had to give everybody a high five. Nice. So, you know, because I was going to do The Rock, but I'm like, they're going to leave me hanging if I do The Rock. <laughs> so I got to do got to do the high five. It, it's, it simply it still amazes me the number of large uh, marketers at large companies that we talk to that just simply don't understand the basics of publishing. Oh, it, yeah, it just absolutely. blows me away. Yeah. Because it, yeah. I, did, I did my, you know, the, the part of the. Uh, presentation that I'm going to unpack a little bit differently in in our new book, but in you know when I talk about platform and how you know if you look at the greatest media companies of all time, any successful media property, any successful content marketing example, they focused on delivering consistent content pretty much on one channel over time. Right. It's like not rocket science; just That's is right. what it is. New York Times, ESPN, uh, Huffington Post, whatever, all the same. And when I do this presentation, I got off a of stage. I had a couple. It was mark. It just happened to be marketers at very large companies. They're like, I can't believe it. Like we've been just like sending, con- creating content all over the place, and <laughs> and trying to put it on every platform. And you just came out and said, do it this way. I'm like, yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying to do it because this is something 
earth shattering. I'm saying that every example that Robert and I have looked at is pretty much this way. <laughs> exactly. So I'm not saying t- I'm just do what works. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's, it's just amazing how they don't get it. But I mean, I get it why they don't get it because you get into those jobs and they say, "Oh, I want ROI tomorrow," and you're like, "How do I interrupt myself?" my way to some kind of success, but I'm going to do it telling some stories. Well, that's the, I mean, that's the thing. It's like the thing that, you know, uh, you know, this was the topic for my uh, letter this week to the, uh, to the ICC community, which is we get so, what happens is, is that the company decides they want to do content, you know, just do content, you know, put those words in quotes or italics or whatever. And, organically what happens is is that you know the 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 company goes as an institution the company goes hey this is cool we have this new thing called content give me some of that and so over time it grows and grows and grows and goes from one person to two people to 10 people to 14 people and one day you wake up and it's 14 people and basically all you do is spew content out into the rest of the organization for them to use however they're going to use it and it's you all of a sudden discover it's not you know like it it doesn't sort of you know wake up one day all of a sudden is ineffective but it's just sort of this slow organic you know weeds growing up in the garden and then one day you go out there and you go wow i can't see anything anymore i'm just so far into the weeds and it's a it's a classic example of you know when there is no strategy one will fill the void you know basically and activities will fill the void where there is no strategic purpose that's, so. you know that's beautiful that should be a t-shirt <laughs> i mean like seriously that i mean that happens we're not yeah. even making that up that happens is when you do not have some kind of a documented strategy you just fill it with activity exactly <sighs> That's beautiful. I'm thanks. I'm starting to tear up, man. This is good. This is crazy. There's your tweetable moment. I'm drinking. I told you, I'm drinking coffee this episode, (laughs) and I never drink coffee. But I'm. It felt like a coffee episode. Caffeinated Polizzi. It's a dangerous thing. We're we're pretty close. Uh, You're at home in L.A., right? And I'm. That's right. I'm in San Francisco, and you're up in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. We're using two can tin cans and a string. That's correct. For this episode, because we're so that close. That is correct. Yeah. So, anyways. <laughs> do we, All right. Do we, we have any we, uh, news? We do have some news. Yes, we so, do have some news. Well, if you were under a rock last week for some reason and didn't hear, Snap, um, formerly Snapchat, of course, um, went public. And we've been talking about that for some time on the show and figured it would be good to open our show with the actual opening of it. And the Snap IPO is... Really notable, and uh, of course, you know they opened, I guess, at about seventeen dollars a share, and went up to about twenty-four dollars a share by the time that the day closed. The link we'll put to in the show notes is uh, from the Wall Street Journal. Where else would we link to? Um, and said that Snap's trading debut on Thursday um, is a major milestone, not just for Wall Street, but for media companies and marketers. And so the world will see whether a service that seems to pack all the necessary ingredients for digital media success in 2017, mobile, know-how, millennial appeal, and an ad operation that looks like a threat to take TV ad dollars, whether that's going to live up to its considerable hype. Will investors keep the faith or run away out of fear Facebook's Instagram is too potent a rival? Will Wall Street forgive slowing user growth and zero in on promising demographic usage trends? Well, we'll have to see. So what did you think? I definitely have a take on this, um, both from the investor side and the technology and marketing side. But what did you what did you think? Um, I mean, you know, 
I guess people made money at this, but it seems kind of crazy, well, the hype. It's super interesting. One of my close friends texted me last week and said, hey, Snap, should I buy? What do you think? And I said, I'm sorry, I'm I'm not a buyer at this point. Actually, uh, just as I saw this thing grow, I didn't do anything, but I almost did pull the trigger on this because – as you said, it went out, went public at $17, which was way above range. It was way over the highest point of the range. So there was That's a lot right. of demand for the initial pub- public offering, offering of Snap Inc., which is a camera company. I don't know if you knew that. It's That's a right. camera company. Yeah, right now they're a camera they're company. Camera. That's what they say in their, their about us statement. And so it went up to, as you said, $24, close to $24 that day. And then the next day went up to $29. Yep, closed at twenty seven on Friday, and right now, as we as we record this, what what's amazing is that we are ten minutes from the closing bell right now as we record this, and uh, Snap went up to twenty eight dollars this morning, and it has since lost twelve percent on the day. It's below twenty four dollars now, so it's taken a beating today. Regardless, I mean, obviously, there's some profit taking, which you it was going to happen at some point. Uh, you think? Well, yeah. here's what I can't. It it's valued at anywhere between this twenty four dollar twenty six dollar level. It's valued at ninety ninety three times revenues. Yeah, that's I mean that's re, that's R. That's not profit, right? That's, that's just insane. I mean, that's just I mean. That's just silly. It's I mean, way over what Facebook. It's not even close to Facebook's valuation. There's no. Yeah. I mean, you can't even grow into this. This is so. The, the the point that I was trying to make is when it hit twenty eight, twenty nine. I and and I don't. I'm not a big fan of shorting stocks. Like I don't want to get into like into the stock market show. But I'm like, this is this is gonna fall. I wish I would have because yeah. Well, here's. I mean, so on that score, th- this is one of the things that I find so. I don't know. I mean. I, I don't begrudge anybody making a living, right? Um, but when you see these kinds of things, this is this is literally Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan printing money. This is this is this is how those guys drive around in Lamborghinis and have private airplanes and yep. stuff like that. Because make it on this. What, what you have to know is that. When this thing was pre-IPO, when they were doing their roadshow and got it ready for the IPO day, they sold more than 145 million of those shares before it went out on the open market at 17 bucks. And so, it sold those like guys, 12 bucks. It, right? Yeah, it's, it's like 11 it, well, or 12 bucks. No, right? seven. What I read was 17 dollars. Was a it share. 17? Yeah, okay. it was 17 dollars a share. Was right. what those those guys. So if you're those guys. You basically get to sit there, buy this thing at 17. The bet is is that it's going to go at least up to 18, which, you know, with any level of hype, and of course it had tons of it, you know it's going to at least do. And then, of course, you just wait until you feel like getting out and you sell as much of that as you feel like getting out and you at least get your money back plus a lot more, you know, considerably, you know, 44% more if you waited until uh, yesterday to, to or, yep. or Thursday to, to sure. actually do the trade and <clears throat> you know you put a few million bucks into that and you immediately you know make 44% on your money in 2 days that's just you know that's just insanity so now aside from all of that 
whether Snap is going to end up being a long-term play and can actually evolve this camera company idea into something where they've got a viable audience and can turn it into a business model and all of that, great. We'll, we'll see, right? Well, I, you know, as you say, they're not going to. You can't grow into the valuation that they have now, so it has to come back down to earth at some point, and we'll see if they can grow it. I, I you know, I have very cautiously optimistic uh, feel that they can do something with it, but it's not another Facebook. And if they don't do something quickly to start monetizing this thing, the market and the public is not going to have the same patience that it had with Facebook. Because remember, Facebook did the same thing. It shot way up and then went way down and then came back up again when they figured out the ad tech. Well, and it, and it's not and it's not Facebook. It's never going to be Facebook, but it could be a profitable platform all into exactly. itself. The I, problem yeah, is is that people yeah. yeah people are hyping it up that it could be another Facebook and it's not going to be because I mean if you just look at the ad tech side of it, it's and the people that I've talked to that's purchased advertising on Snap's platform, it's it's not easy. Like you ha you can't just no, do no. what you do it, on Facebook and right. take and take a thirty second spot and throw it onto Facebook and and yeah. do and boost it's a it. whole yeah it's a whole integrated complicated thing which is going to be fine for a very niche set of companies that want to get their messaging out through the platform but it's not the same as buying a Google ad or buying a Facebook ad or promoting a post through Facebook which is quite literally once you have an account you can do it with a click of a button I mean so it's that simple to spend money with Facebook whereas it's just not with Snapchat yeah. and I think it's going to be I think it's going to hurt the hurt the platform over time but who knows maybe I mean they could literally just evolve completely out of the whole content well, platform that's the side thing, and right? become a hardware company and yeah. sell glasses. Well, that's the thing. That's what we talked about. I, the couple, there was last episode of the one before. Yeah. They could be, I mean, this is, the, this is the content model. They could be launching their own platform, build an audience, and then launch products and services off exactly. of Exactly. I mean, they could be the Warby Parker of wearables for internet you know, content production. So it, it's, it's, it will be very interesting to follow. I'll put it that way. I think that's the, that's the, that's my, that's my, that's my astute observation. It's going to be interesting. There you go. Interesting is a fantastic <laughs> word. For well, there, there's another article there that actually sort of ties into this. We can talk about just quickly, briefly here, because it was just fascinating to see as well, which is the YouTube announcement that they are going to launch an over the top $35 a month bundle of television services, which is going to go compete with, you know, a lot of people, not the, not the least of which is Netflix and Comcast and every other cable platform yeah. in the world. Um, what did you think about that one? I, I really feel that this is going to be super successful. For, yeah, for I YouTube think it is too. Because they're taking, so, I mean, basically what they're doing is they're, uh, they're taking uh, a Netflix type programming model because YouTube has their own stars. So they have that. They have all the they have YouTube Red. They have YouTube <laughs> Sans One PewDiePie. <laughs> yeah, something right. like that. Yeah. Uh, so they have that, and then now they're adding. From what I'm reading here, is they're adding like regular programming from NBC, ABC, a lot of the other uh, channels as well. Packaging into this, and you can you don't have to have a cord anymore. So I think where it's really going to hurt people is it's going to hurt cable, but then it's going head to head against your your Netflix and your Amazon Prime, and that's sort of Google's answer to this whole thing. And they they already have – I mean, the great thing is they already have a built-in audience to sell yeah, this. that's exactly right. It's just right. an upsell. 
Um, yeah, it's 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 it'll be very interesting to see how they can make the deals with the content providers to to you know to get that you know to get the rights for that content because that's going to become that's going to become quite frankly the battleground is going to be the rights for content you know and when you're a content producer where are you going to go which you know which bundle are you going to become part of because it's going to become an exclusivity game where you know you can see game of thrones here but you can't see it there right and so that that will be really interesting to see as they start rolling this thing out. But I th- I agree with you. I think this is going to be really successful. I well, think yeah, it's it, it's that's... so interesting. I was looking and I was just uh, uh, surfing through Netflix, which I guess is a favorite pastime of many. But I was going through and I was I realized when you look at the new programming, it is. I mean, it's mostly Netflix stuff, and of course Amazon oh, yeah. Prime is doing that as well. And and that's the that's the deal. That's what they want, right? They so they they attracted you in yep. with old shows that yep. fantastic and now they're going to keep you with new programming that are that will actually differentiate them from other platforms so that's exactly right that's exactly right it's, it's a classic model it is it's it's model. absolutely brilliant the way that they laid that out and um not a lot of people saw that coming but fairly successful yeah, fairly successful, amazingly fairly, successful. Yeah. <laughs> what am I exactly. talking about? Well, so that's a nice segue to our next story here, which actually um, fits right into that and and really plays into the marketer sort of takeaway with this. This uh, article that we'll link to in the show notes comes from uh, MediaShift.org, and the headline here is: Media companies no longer control distribution, but they do control trust. The article opens up by saying, the following piece is a guest post from Chris Palmer, the deputy editor um, of Digital Strategy with The Conversation Australia. And so he opens up his post by saying, Facebook has media executives running scared. It's understandable. More than 40% of adult Americans now get news from Facebook. Globally, around 1 in 10 people say social media is their main source of news. As he says, quote, We ignore 99% of PR-driven news, and when we make mistakes and need to run corrections, we do it publicly, front and center on our homepage, not buried in the back pages. Media companies no longer control the distribution of their content. Fewer people are visiting their homepages, ad blockers are destroying their business model, and clickbait is eroding trust in their brands. All of this has created a culture of us and them between traditional publishers and social media platform providers. But there's one thing some media companies have that the social media platforms do not, and that is trust. And so what do you say to that, Mr. Polizzi? Do do publishers have trust but not distribution? I I think trust is is the most important thing that you can probably engender with your audience. And I think most publishers and brands probably don't have it with their platforms, which, and thus is the opportunity, which I don't think it's just, I mean, even though this article talks about the opportunity for media companies, we talked about it last episode, the opportunity is there for brands as well, who actually, and what I love about this is there's a whole section in here where they go through how, uh, and it's, so it's worth reading for that st- standpoint about we need to make sure that every piece of content we put out is truly valuable and we cannot exactly. give in on anything and any of our you – know, basically the process of journalism. We can't give in on that. But I, I thought it was interesting after I read this and he's talking about how you know how a lot of media companies didn't play the right way with social media and sort of got lost in that whole shuffle. I think what it's done is it's put a huge spotlight – on anyone that creates content, on whether or not it's it's truly differentiated. I think that's the biggest thing because 
because there's so much availability of content today. And if you're just an also ran, you're, you're, it's not going to work at all. It's not going to get people to come back to your site. And that's where it's helped companies like the New York Times, as we talked about, what it was the three, four episodes where they've seen a record number of subscribers in the past quarter. That's where the opportunity is. So it's two things. It's one is, uh, is it is it truly differentiated? And the second thing is, and they make a mention of this, is you cannot be dedicated to having online advertising be your profit driver. That's right. So those two things: is it differentiated? Is it? And this is, by the way, this is with any company, even you know, non-media company or or a product uh, brand. Is it truly differentiated content? And how are you driving revenues from it? And if it is online advertising solely, not that it can't be part of that, can absolutely be part of the equation. And you and I will talk about that le- at length in the book. But if you're just focused on online advertising, you are going to have a problem at some point. Because more and more people are moving away to direct. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating thing because, um, you, you know, I think it was you who said this. Uh, you know, and I and and I may have read it, but I but I believe it was you that said it and talked about this idea that there it's not a business model uh, or it, it you know there is a business model problem here, and that is truly at the heart of what we're talking about is, you know, this is a, an, an understanding of your core business model is, 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 is what's at play. It's certainly what we're talking about in the book, you know, is the business model of marketing. Um, and this business model of publishing is, you know, sort of at one of the hearts of this. And to me, there's sort of, as I look at it, there's two pieces here. There's the business model problem, which you're getting to the heart of very clearly. And the second is a content strategy challenge which is what we're talking about here, this trust, this has little to do with facts. And that needs to be really clear, is that it's not whether you have the facts or not, because quite frankly, the facts are commodities at this point. So it's not just being able to answer all of the questions that your customers may have or that your you know that constituents, that your readers or whatever. It's not just having the facts. It's being able to present those facts in such a way that people look at you as wise, as you know, as having wisdom mm-hmm. and and of creating the trust in that wisdom. Because, you know, as uh, I, you've heard me say this in the master class, and this is something that my screenwriting professor, Robert McKee, talked to me about, you know, many, many times. People don't, you know, people, the truth is not the facts. The, the truth is what people think about the facts. And so if you can make people believe something, if you can help, you know, them understand something and provide that level of wisdom by synthesizing these things together, that's the value and that's what creates the trust is that ability to be dependable and, and it's you know, trust is an emotion. It's not a binary thing whether it's off or on. It's, you know, how much trust do you have? And that will be the true value of what we, you know, this is going to get a little bit to my my rave that we'll talk about here in in, in a bit, but this idea of creating trust and the opportunity that brands have now to do that, not only with their, you know, not only with their core customers through the products and services that they offer, but by the marketing that they create, the stories, the content, the things that they create with their customers and their customers' network and friends and family and all of that, is truly has the opportunity to save, 
journalism. It has the ability to save what we're talking about here in in making sure that we have an educated market. You you know, we we're both telling the story now of Aero Electronics mm-hmm. and the reason that they're buying magazines and 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 all of these wonderful media properties is not because they're trying to become a media company. It's because they need to subsidize that industry to make sure that electrical engineers are getting the right education. And that's making, creating something where their market will survive. And that's a self-sustaining sort of uh, effort there. And so it's such an important thing for us to understand is that the opportunity, the evolution of media and, the ev- and our evolution within it is a huge opportunity for us to develop that trust. But it's only going to come through differentiated content and a new business model in which we present it. I wonder if that's partially the reason why Bezos purchased the Washington Post because he just felt that we I mean the, these outlets need to exist just like Aero Electronics said look if if our industry is going to continue to grow we need to be the ones that take a leadership stand and purchase these brands I hope so I really hope so I I I I, I want to believe that uh, well, I haven't I mean, was, seen. I haven't seen him say anything. No, like that. I haven't. I haven't either. seen. I haven't seen anything like that out there. But but given the investment he put into it, and and the the rapid sort of success of what the Washington Post has seen over the last eighteen or twenty four months, it it feels like that very much. No, it was interesting. I I read this. I don't know if, where I was reading it as of last week sometime. But Warren Buffett was talking about. You know there. Were, talking about fake news and and where he goes to get his news. And he says, for the last, whatever it was, 30, 40 years, it's been the New York Times and the Washington Post. That's what I I said. I don't don't have a fake news problem. I trust those two organizations. So I don't have to worry about it. So everybody's all worried about, oh, hey, where do you find the right information? He says, I haven't changed a thing. I'm still trying. So it's just amazing. And that's where I would like to see because it concerns me too. I mean, you and I are involved in a lot of different industries. It's it's just fun, kind of, uh, as as being in content marketing. We get a little bit of taste of all these different uh, industries uh, that we're not necessarily involved in. But from you know automotive industry to you know these deep hardcore B two B industries, and some of these media companies, I'm concerned about that they're not going to make it. And that's where I would love to see a brand step up. And yes, there's some amazing benefits, and you and I are talking about the other benefits that Aero Electronics have because they have these 51 different brands. But I'd love to say, hey, a rising tide lifts all boats, and we need to be the ones that come in and say, this brand is important to our industry, and we need to make sure that nobody comes in and either says, hey, we're not, this isn't making money for me as a media brand, and I'm going to get rid of it. Or just discards it altogether. Yeah. Um, so there you go. Yeah, it's an it's an important thing. It's an important thing, and I'm and um, you know, I mean, look, we, <clears throat> you and I are, we sit in the inside baseball, you know, seats, right? And so it's a little easier for us to get worked up about all this stuff and sort of feel like it's it's the most important thing that marketers should be doing, and it's the absolute. It you know, is. Oh my God, and <laughs> and we can, you know. We can definitely, you know, basically drink our own Kool-Aid, as it were. But, but I really do, do truly believe that, you know, solving this is solving the big challenge that marketing has right now. And there's, you know, 
we're in one sh- one article that we're not covering on the uh, on the show today, but it's a you know it's this idea of of you know is there a future for marketing? You know, just broadly speaking, is there a future for the marketing department, or does it completely go away in a world where you have digital assistants and bots and chat, but you know, and and virtual reality and you know all this stuff that just renews your stuff based on your purchases and everything is a subscription. It's like, well, it's you know. I think there is. I think there is, and I think it's. I think it's. You know. I think it's in storytelling. But that's. You know. But that's just me. That's just me. <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> okay. Our last story um, of the show here. Another sort of nice segue here, um, which comes to us courtesy of our friends at Contently. Um, an interesting post here, and the headline is why Martech companies need to be terrified of Google and Amazon. And the article opens up by saying, in ad tech. There's Facebook and Google, and then there's everybody else. In the first quarter of 2016, revenue rose 21% year-over-year, according to the Interactive Advertising Bureau, but 90% of that growth went to Facebook and Google. It's no wonder that industry experts like Jason Kint, chief executive of Digital Content Next, refer to the pair as a duopoly. There are serious consequences for the many ad tech players jostling for that meager 10% of the pie. Ad tech is funding uh, is dropping rapidly, according to the Financial Times, and investors see dim futures for ad tech companies who can't compete with Google or Facebook. The article then goes on to describe how there's a really interesting thing here where MarTech companies, and when he says MarTech companies, he's talking about Salesforce.com and Marketo and all the MarTech um, things that are out there really need to start looking at Facebook and Google as the competition and Amazon as the competition rather than some of their competition. I have a little bit of a different take on this, but I wanted to get yours no, I, first, I Joe. Would, and- I actually would love to hear – I mean the the quote by Scott Brinker, good friend of the, the show, where he's talking about um, the marketing – I'll read this. The marketing technology battle of the next five years will not be Adobe versus Oracle versus Salesforce so much as all of those MarTech vendors versus Amazon, Facebook, and Google. I just thought that was super interesting. That's a – it's a bold statement, but it's I would a, love to get your take on this. So. Well, I agree um, with Scott, which is not surprising because I tend to agree with a lot of the stuff that he says. Um, but I, 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 reading the post, I'm not sure this is either different and or you know <laughs> um, orthogonal to what he's talking about. But I'll say it, and and it might be a bit of a different take. I I agree that that Martech's biggest challenge may be. Google, Amazon, and Facebook, but for maybe a slightly different reason. And the reason I see it is because when you start talking about, and we've, you and I have talked about this a lot, um, this sort of bundling up of the web and, and walled gardens and wow, what a crummy place it'll be, what a crazy place for the theme of the show it'll be if really the entire internet is encapsulated in Google, Facebook, and Amazon, right? So basically the internet becomes Google, Facebook, and Amazon, and maybe Snapchat, or, you know, basically becomes a handful of properties that the world goes to, and then, you know, oh yeah, there's also websites, right? And... This gets into, you know, all kinds of, you know, issues that we could talk about. But the the main thing there is MarTech exists because brands feel the need to have digital experiences. And and if if brands don't feel the need to have their own digital experiences, and what I mean by that are e-commerce stores, 
websites, blogs, digital media experiences, communities, and other things where they can measure their ability to attract in people that do stuff, then there really is no purpose for MarTech. In other words, if email and websites and landing pages go the way of the dodo because we can just basically put everything on Facebook, my need for Marketo goes to zero. And if my, you know, if I don't have a website any longer and I don't have a need for a digital magazine or a blog, my need for a web content management system goes to zero. And so if what we start to see is a major trend here is, is that the bundling of the web becomes literally Facebook, Google, and Amazon, and you can pretty much just go sell your products, develop your space, attract and try and drive your audiences through those channels, my need for marketing technology is really nil. I don't have it. And so if I'm running a MarTech company, I have a vested interest in making sure that the industry stays open, websites be, stay important, email stays important, landing pages stay important, the ability to create content and create ex digital experiences that are unique to the brand are such, is such an important thing, man, I'd be looking at teaming up with all of my MarTech pals and saying, we need to further this thing called digital experiences or content or you know whatever you want to call it there is a vested interest in all those martech companies to do that and and i just think that's a fascinating t uh take and and i hope i'm sort of in alignment with what those guys are talking about because i think it's it, it's an important thing i i love that i absolutely i mean that that is the battle that we're going to fight for the next few years Be and by the way uh, we're in some cases i guess we're losing it because how many people have you heard that said, oh, I just need to be on Facebook now and I just yeah. need to be on these other platforms and I don't necessarily have – I can be on Medium or whatever the case is and I don't need to have my own experience. And I think there is you there is a choice that you can make, but I think if, if more people start making the choice to just say, whatever, I'm, I'm going to become a commodity, um, that's going to leave a – I hope a large opportunity, just like, for example, not all retail is dying. Everybody talks about, oh, Amazon killed retail. Not all retail is dying. I mean, Lowe's and Home Depot are doing fantastic. Uh, some, you know, I think that we've seen a resurgence of, of um, some of the uh, craft breweries that are going on. People want to get together. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that Amazon cannot do. And I think That's the same right. thing happens for uh, digital experiences. A lot of things that Facebook cannot do, even though they'll tell you that they probably can. So I think there's, there's, I think where the opportunity is that if you really do create this new, amazing, differentiated experience that's not on Facebook, that's not on Google, that's not on Amazon, but you can still use those things to drive people to your site. It's just, it goes back to the article we just talked about. You mm -hmm. can use those platforms. That's fantastic. Go ahead and use them. But don't have that be your platform. Ha drive them to a platform. And that's where I think New York Times just has done a fantastic job. And they've sort of – they've not been publishing as much on Facebook. And they've really been driving to this experience that you get on the New York Times and then subscribe. Yeah. And get people to subscribe to that. So I, yeah. I, I think that's a, that's the I, I love your take on that. I th I totally agree with that. Yeah, it's you know it's basically seeding, and when I say seeding, I mean C E D I N G seeding 
the audience to those platforms. And if you give up on it, if you give up on it, either on the marketer side or as a, you know, on the evangelizing from the MarTech side, what you're saying is, you know what, we need to go back to the, the old days of the ABC, CBS, and NBC, and, you know, that's where the audiences are. And so we've got to make million-dollar commercials and stick them on there and spend $100 million in getting our commercials seen by those audiences, and hopefully they'll do stuff that we want them to do. And that's just crazy. That's that's just, you know, but to you the know, of the show, here's that's the thing. just yeah. crazy. But here's the problem. Do you know how many CMOs believe that? I well, I know I, it's a challenge. This is a the, they absolutely uh, believe that. Okay, well, yeah, we've got to use storytelling and we've got to we've got to tell our story in a different way. But they're basically just creating a new kind of interruption. Exactly. Yes, I know. I, this is this is why this is why you and I need to run for president. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. Bye. I'm sorry. This has yeah. been this has been fun, sir. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't want to. You don't want to have I'm a meeting with the Russian ambassador. I think. I think. So. I think. Uh, by the way, the Russian ambassador seems to be the most popular guy that never has a memorable meeting. Right? I mean, he's like that guy must be really, really boring in meetings because nobody remembers a meeting with that. Maybe dude. he's the guy that anyway. people want to have drinks with. And yeah. He's just, I don't know. Is Rufy involved? I don't know what's going on. Maybe we should something. talk about our episode sponsor and get ourselves out of this mess. <laughs> yes, we can't is what talk we should about do. It. God, yes. please, please help if we get into politics. Yes, <laughs> we have some amazing events coming up for Content Marketing Institute and some that I want to let you know about. We have opened our Content Marketing Institute University uh, spring semester. It is open. It opened on March 1st. It closes at the end of March. So we've already had a number of emails asking about the coupon code that uh, we talked about last week. So the coupon code is PNR100. It's PNR 100, gives you $100 off Content Marketing Institute training. Go ahead to contentmarketinguniversity.com and sign up for that. It's brand new for 2017. Uh, Somebody named Robert Rose put it together. It's simply (laughs) fantastic. You're going to want to check it out. Go ahead and sign up. But again, you only have a couple weeks left. But we want uh, our listeners to get uh, the best possible price on that. So use PNR 100 as the coupon code. Make sure you get your get you signed up, get your team signed up. And I believe if you have more than four people that are signing up for that, we got a special discount. It's up there on the site. You can check that out. Uh, we'd love to uh, have you and your team sign up for that. We have Intelligent Content Conference coming up, which is, by the way, you don't know this. I just saw the uh, the stats for this, and we've already surpassed last year's uh, oh, paid numbers. That makes me so Isn't happy. that something? We have four weeks to go or three weeks to go, whatever it is, and we've already surpassed last year, so this is going to, for sure, be our biggest intelligent content conference ever. And by the way, the quality of attendees this year, it's just fantastic. If you're with a mid-size or large company and you care about your content strategy, you definitely want to be at Intelligent Content Conference this year, March 28th to 30th in Las Vegas at the M Resort. It's not on the Strip, folks. By the way, most people know this. I love Vegas. I would be. I would live in Las Vegas, but yeah. some people don't like the Strip, the no, M Resort. Yeah, I would is, be. I would be one of those. I would. Be I know you don't. But did, but yeah. isn't the M Resort a great place to go? Because it's it, not. You don't get uh, all the Strip traffic and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's as lovely as Vegas gets. Let's put it that. That's way. That's a really good way to put it, my friend. Especially somebody that doesn't like Vegas. But if you do like the Strip, there's a free shuttle that runs. I don't there know, like is. every hour or something that you can get to the Strip just if you want that. Anyways, we have some amazing speakers this year uh, that are on hand. I think we've got uh, we've got the Dr. Sam 
Hahn is the one that I want to oh, see from Washington Post talking about how they're looking at their algorithms and how they're integrating all that data into yeah. basically creating better content with their editorial team. And then, uh, then what we you got call- Ryan, we got Ryan Bell coming from, from uh, VR scout, you VR know, he's going to be talking about virtual reality. Uh, we've got uh, Pavan Aurora coming from IBM, from Watson. IBM to talk about Watson. That's going to be great. And then like, all kinds of wonderful uh, brands. And then your closing keynote is with. Oh, it's going to be great. It's Fran Leibowitz, Fran Leibowitz. Uh, who I'm super, super excited to, uh, to talk with. And I mean, I, I have a feeling it's going to stray into politics just because just that's the way she is. But, you know, we'll see. But we're going to we'll keep it. Long. We're going to, we're going to, yeah. we're going to try to keep it on it her view of the media. Fun. It should be fun talking about the culture of content. That's, that's, that's what I'm loosely titling it. It's a conversation with Fran about the culture of content. And I think it's a, I think it'll be a lot of fun. So intelligentcontentconference.com, make sure you sign up now is the time. And then the last thing to remind you of is early bird deadline for the content marketing awards ends on March 10th. So if you want the absolute best price to get in your five or 10 or 15 awards that you want to submit for uh, or possible awards for 91 categories this year, we went up from 75. We had to add all these new categories. I think I've got a Snapchat category. I like a really, it pained me to do it, Robert, but we had to add a Snapchat category. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so we got 91 categories this year. Go to contentmarketingawards.com for all the information. And of course, those winners, the, the big overall winners are, um, are lauded at Content Marketing World in September, where we get them up on stage and we do a wonderful thing and you get to tell your friends and get to take pictures with with cool people in orange suits. That would be me. Um, So it'll be fun. But uh, make sure you go to contentmarketingawards.com and check that out as well. So just a couple of our upcoming events, my friend. Fabuloso. Fabuloso. I love it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for your favorite part of the show. It is our rants and rave section when Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that makes us feel like we're going crazy or something that makes us crazy in love. Um, and let's see. Uh, you are going first because you have this what? marketing. Yes, what? I know. Are it you is kidding me? This crazy. has to be some crazy. kind of mistake. Mine is a brief rave. And yeah. have you seen the, uh, the latest issue of Fast Company by chance, Robert? I have not. Okay. I have not seen the latest. So this is one Fast of this, uh, this issue one of my favorite issues of all time for oh, fast wow. company they have, right. so it's the it's the world's 50 most innovative companies uh the businesses that matter most in 2017 so this is the march 2017 issue of fast company so first of all the rave is if you if you care about uh content marketing content strategy at all you should read this because a lot of the examples in here are actually talking about the business model of content and how they're leveraging either the data that they're getting in from consumer behavior with the content they're sending out or the products that they're creating because of it and just one that i wanted to pull out is on our good friends at buzzfeed buzzfeed was number 18 out of 50 and they wow. they received this little award from Fast Company for feeding a viral fever. And I think we've talked about this a little bit on the show, but I'm going to read some of this because it's very cool. So uh, Tasty, which I think everyone has seen Tasty videos. A lot of people don't know that Tasty, the brand, is from BuzzFeed. So Tasty is BuzzFeed's collection of time-lapse cooking videos uh, that have created, let's see, have been viewed by 
over 40 or they've been viewed over 40 billion times i had to look at this because i'm like is that with a b i think we talked about this uh, the tasty thing on a on a show once 40 billion yeah what the heck so 40 billion views (laughs) in less than two years on facebook instagram snapchat youtube and tasty's own site now this is what i like about it uh more than 1 million people shared tasty's jalapeno popper burger recipe Ooh, and uh and then good. and then basically from that they get that that was uh affiliate sales they got some affiliate sales off of that from the appliance yeah, uh, on right. uh, oster's appliance maker so i'm just talking about they create this content and then they're creating new revenue streams so that was through affiliate sales and then this is what i really like they have created tasty the cookbook and i think we talked about this a little we bit did. but i like that yeah that uh, that uh fast companies Focusing on this, Tasty the Cookbook, a hard copy collection that can be customized according to the recipe t- according to recipe type, from breakfast food to kids meals, sold a whopping one hundred thousand copies in its first few weeks. We didn't even know the brand was that powerful, says Tasty's global general manager Ashley McCollum. And I just wanted to point this out because here is a media company that have created a sub brand of people that really like the the way that they're creating content, telling these stories, the way they're promoting that, but they're actually driving revenues in different ways. One is through affiliate marketing, and two is through they're actually selling premium content packages like this Tasty Cookbook, which I think is fantastic. And I just wanted to give another shout-out to a media company that's not just relying on advertising to get them to the next level. So there you I'd go. love that. Yeah, we covered that just when it started. When they just started doing that sort of on-demand cookbook thing, we 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 talked about it as a, a as a show item, and I can't remember how many episodes it was ago. But it's so cool that they're actually one winning awards, you know, that they're most innovative, and two that they're selling. <laughs> I was going to say selling like hotcakes, and it was just no. And they are. It's just yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I think you quite, can get a tasty quite cookbook. literally selling. Yeah, hot you can cakes, get a tasty yes. cookbook just on hotcakes. <laughs> Which is unbelievable. So the hotcakes are selling like hotcakes. That's funny, actually, to order a book on hotcakes. It's selling like hotcakes. Yeah. (laughs) All right. What what do you I make myself laugh. Okay, yes. I have a rave as well. Um, Mine is infinitely more geeky. Um, You know, and it's uh, somewhere along the line, like McKinsey sort of got it i i guess um i have become a fanboy of some of the some of the stuff that they've been putting out of late um and this is an article from the mckinsey quarterly which i have now subscribed to because it it has it has caught my attention enough times um i used to find their stuff just unapproachably sort of high level and ivory towerish and and of late it's just been great um anyway so it's a rave this article that we'll link to in the show notes um, is called "The New Battleground for Marketing-Led Growth," um, and it's a it's a study that they did actually, where what they found in doing this study is how important the very 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 top of the funnel is. Um, and they don't use the funnel, of course. They use what they call they've been working on for a long time their consumer decision journey. Um, and if, for those of you who've seen it, you may have seen it. It's the one that's shaped a little bit like a seashell. We actually talked, Carla and I talked about it in our book, um, their consumer decision journey, which is, it's fairly well popular. It looks like a little bit like a spiral. And there are basically four main um, pieces to it, which is one, the initial consideration set. Two is where you, it's the active evaluation of a, of a product. 
Three is the moment of purchase, and then four is the loyalty loop of where you actually repurchase and or stay, you know, a customer. And they basically say those four key spots are where brands need to focus. They, but this study and this new position paper that they've written to sort of support this is how important the number one is, the initial consideration set and in terms of growth. And they actually propose a new measurement, which is the, basically what they show in their research is how much more brands grow if they're part of the initial consideration set from the very, very beginning of what they, you know, of the consumer's journey. And they and, and it's really, really geeky, and I won't go through that. And they actually go through different verticals from mobile to auto insurance to investments to CPG products and all this kind of stuff about how, how important the initial phases of the consumer journey are. What I want to focus on for my, the sort of heart of my rave here is what they basically recommend um, is is how do you create this link with the initial consideration and and growth in what you do? And you know they talk about pruning, you know, loyalty budgets, and you know, and I'm not sure about all of that. But what what they really talk about is this earning the initial consideration from your customers. And they don't say this isn't a case to go out and do a bunch more television advertising, brand awareness advertising. What it is is trying to resegment the consumers that you're not reaching and really create value for them using what? Content. And it's just a fascinating thing as they as they talk about it, the two case studies um, that they actually use are L'Oreal where they talk about how L'Oreal, by teaching people how to use makeup, and of course what they're talking about there is makeup.com, even though they don't go into the details um, of that at all, or Charles Schwab, where they, Charles Schwab, which is, was a online tools helping investors learn the basics of financial planning, all content marketing. And so this idea of becoming part of the initial consideration set in this article by McKinsey and the research that's supported by it basically supports the idea of delivering value at the upper, upper, uppermost parts of the funnel, the initial consideration set, and using content and media-driven experiences in order to drive that value so that you're part of that initial consideration set. So if you're trying to build a business case for content marketing, this article is an amazing way to show data and research and a new measurement paradigm that you could take to your boss and say, this is how we drive growth. We drive value through the creation of these digital content experiences that put us front and center in the initial consideration set of a customer. And that will help drive our growth and help drive our brand and help drive sales. So I just think it's a wonderful article and just another great you know arrow in your quiver to use as you build your business case for content marketing. I think content marketing has finally made it. We've made it. Yeah, it's so funny. They don't mention it once. They don't. The, the McKinsey article doesn't even talk about it. But they use. You know, they talk about guilt. They talk about. Um, uh, they talk about Schwab. They talk about Makeup.com, and and without even ever mentioning them, sort of things. Just saying, basically, it's helping these customers do the thing that they're trying to do. Which, of course, we talk about a lot in the Jobs to Be Done framework and all of that stuff in our masterclass and. It's just, you know, it's all coming together. And it's just, to me, it just feels like, finally, it's like, there, go, do it. <laughs> Get it done. Do it, yeah, do it or don't do it. Yeah, or don't do it, yeah, right. Just or make the decision. It. That's why. Yeah, exactly, I mean, right. So whenever I do a speech, I'm like, you don't have to do this. No, of course But if you're going to do it, do it right. Just, exactly. you know. Exactly. Stop messing exactly. around. What are you, what are you exactly. doing? Anyways. <laughs> all right. 
There you uh, have it. We we usually don't get to this part of the show where I'm actually still talking, but I guess I know I should yeah. do the, this old you gotta, marketing. You actually have to do some work now. Oh man, yeah, I'm usually check already, your email. Yeah, stuff. Usually, you're checking out. I'm usually checking, checking email. Yeah, usually doing other work while you yeah. do the final part. Now you can do other work. So. No, I listen to you. You listen. I'm, I'm, I'm a good. I'm a good co-host. Good. I'm your friend. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this one. Is I love this example. Absolutely love it. And there's some actually. Uh, if you're if you're interested in this case study, you should follow up and watch some of these videos because they're simply fantastic. So, uh, as part of our interview process for Content Inc., so this happened in early 2015, we interviewed a gentleman by the name of Klaus Pilgard, and Klaus is known as Chili Klaus. And Chili Klaus is one of the most well-known, very well-known celebrity figure in Denmark, all because of the extraordinary way he talks about chili peppers, believe it or not. Klaus's YouTube videos have garnered millions, millions and millions of views, including one, which is the one you should actually watch if you haven't seen it, Robert, one where Klaus uh, conducts the Danish National Chamber Orchestra playing a, a, a song while eating the world's hottest chili pepper and that video alone has seen more than three million views by the way that is more than half half the population of denmark so pretty (laughs) put it in perspective here a lot of people have viewed that one now it's interesting when as i talk about the sweet spot you know klaus's sweet spot was really the intersection of his skill at performance art and he's been a performer for a long time and also he has he really does have passion for chili peppers and he's like well maybe i can parlay this into a business and what he didn't realize was there was actually an opportunity to differentiate around the heat <laughs> listen to this around the heat behind chili peppers so there's, there's a lot of content and experts that talked about just different kinds of chili peppers but nobody was he th- he saw a content gap around um the heat the, around, I'm sorry, the, the taste of the different chili peppers and the heat. So nobody was really talking about that. And I actually pulled this little quote, so I'll read this to you. So this is Klaus, and Klaus says, I was actually sitting there in this little summer house getting a little bored, and I had my camera with me and thought, what if you talked about chili peppers in the same way as you were told about raising wine? You talk about all the different kinds of tastes, not about the alcohol, but what it tastes like. Is it coffee or is it food? What is it? So instead of t- telling about how hot these peppers were, I was getting ar- around the peppers and talking about the different varieties. And then my body started to tell another story while eating the peppers. And then maybe he says, maybe that's why the videos became so popular. So as he was talking about the taste, of course, it's very visible, as you can see him getting really hot, and especially what the orchestra is <laughs> getting. Awesome. I mean, it's funny. These people are like running off stage because they're – and there's one – that you absolutely have to see where the guy, that's a very famous uh, gentleman from Denmark, gets sick uh, and runs off, and it's it's horrible. So uh, it's just it, – <laughs> so out of all this, out nice. of all this craziness, by the way, he consistently did these videos over a period of time on chili peppers, talking about the taste of these uh, uh, chili peppers. And from this success, Klaus has launched dozens of products – he has Chili Klaus chili chips, chili sauce, chili licorice, and dozens and dozens of, of other products. It's amazing because when I was looking on the site, Robert, I'm scrolling. I mean, this he has all kinds of packaging 
for these different chili chips and chili sauce. It is really amazing. He's got his face on him, and apparently he's doing really, really well. So it's just amazing that you could take, build this audience, and then parlay that into selling all kinds of different uh, products <clears throat> from that. That's amazing. So, so Chili Klaus has done a fantastic job. By the way, great person, uh, amazing person and human being, and just done some amazing work. And that's our this old marketing example. I love it. Build an audience, and then they'll tell you what they'll buy from you. It's just a. It's 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 that simple. <laughs> By the way, it, he only he has fifty two thousand subscribers. So if you think about yeah, it, it's a lot of people right. think not, you have right. to have like a million. Like I know we we did. Uh, we talked about Matthew Patrick, who runs Game Theory. He has over 5 million subscribers, and he's done some amazing work. And, I mean, some people like, well, 5 million, I can't do 5 million. Well, 50,000 is is attainable. Yeah. It, it, so it's just, I mean, even, it doesn't even, whatever your minimum viable audience could be. It could be 1,000. could be 5,000. That's 000. right. So, so, That's right. So we're, you know, focus on that, you know, whole Kevin Kelly thing of your first 1,000 fans, and I think you'll go right by that. So, yep, there you that go. is absolutely right. I love it. I absolutely love it. So, well, you're in. You you have what do you, what do you have there in San Francisco? I'm, I'm you, uh, oh, I'm presenting at Webinar World with our good <laughs> friends at On Twenty Four, which is ironic, right? I mean, the fact that it's an in person conference called Webinar World, which is uh, I'm, I'm wrapping my head around that. Are there going to be webinars at Webinar? No, World? no. It's it's all about how you can do better webinars. So just, hey, it's the same thing, just like, you know, podcast camp, pod camp and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it doesn't. Apparently, they've uh, pretty much sold out. They've done. So I'm going to talk about how a little bit how we use webinars at CMI, but I'm really going to talk about how you build a platform first so that one of the ways that you can diversify and create a better relationship with your customers is through webinars, which of course we've done we've, some cool research. We've done some good research there. So I don't know if you, I don't know if you even you've, you've even seen that, but there's some good research that CMI has done on webinars. So I know that I know that about sixty-five to seventy percent of all enterprise marketers do webinars on a consistent basis. Yeah. But if you've got some other stuff that I haven't seen, send I, it over to me. Yeah. Well. We'll you you don't let air. me see. You don't let me see anything. So that's the problem. You go and do your little research project, and then you you're just a hide busy it. man. You're a busy man running uh, around doing your. Orange there's a conspiracy. It's, it's there's a, a <laughs> there's a conspiracy. You're tapping my phone. What are you doing this week? <laughs> I'm, I, oh my god! I know you have recordings of me. I do. I, I do have recordings of you, my friend. You could call Mr. Comey and talk all about it. Okay, <laughs> so, uh, anyway, you're, you're working on I am home this week. this week. I am working yeah. my little heart out trying to write this book that you and I are writing. Um, in, the addition, in addition to sort of getting ready for intelligent content with the workshop that I'm teaching, the keynote that I'm giving, getting ready for Fran Lebowitz, and also writing the book, uh, I will have my head in a computer and some music on and turning off email for a good part of the next few days as I try and uh, put a lot of words into Microsoft Word. So that that's my week ahead. Sounds divine. <clears throat> yes, it's wonderful. Good luck, my friend. No. <laughs> Thank you very much <laughs> for that. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that is it. If that wasn't enough, um, uh, this is uh, Robert Rose and Joe Polizzi. We are signing off. And if you like this episode, number 173, won't you leave us a kind review on iTunes? We need those reviews on iTunes because you know what? That boosts us up in the popularity and, you know, we want to be part of the cool kids. 
And if you haven't yet, we hope you'll consider also subscribing via iTunes or Stitcher.com or your favorite podcatcher. And when you leave us a review or if you subscribe, let us know. Won't you hashtag us up at this old marketing on the Twitter? We'd love to thank you personally for that. And also story ideas, story ideas, story ideas. We need them. We love them. We want them. The hashtag us up on Twitter at this old marketing and let us know about your story ideas. Or you can always send an email or a question to this old marketing at contentinstitute.com if you're on the email. All the links we talked about today will be available in the show notes as we publish on Monday evening and, of course, at the show post at thisoldmarketing.com on Saturdays. Until next week, everybody, remember, it is your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing. Part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.